<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center broadcasting live from Silicon Beach in Santa Monica, California here. It's a great day. Glad to have you with us for another journey through cyber law and business. And um, as usual, we'll make a few notes of what today is historically. And um, it is surprisingly, there is such a thing. It is international talk like a pirate day, which I will think I will refrain from for most of the program. And um, But um, more importantly, historically, today is the day that Washington's farewell address was printed. And I believe they, um, they read the address every year in, um, in Congress as well. And interestingly enough, the, uh, the address was never delivered. It was always written. Um, but there's some, it's, it's, it's interesting to read all these years later, um, since many of the warnings that he, um, he spoke of came true. So um, it's definitely worth it. It's a very short read, and it's worth checking out. Um, so, but we have a great show with us today. We have some interesting developments, um, some of them we've been reading about in the news, some of them more in the legal sphere. Um, but in California, a federal judge made a ruling that the California spam law was preempted by the Can Spam Act, and um, that was a case that just recently came down last week. And we have with us Leora Netta, who uh, argued the case uh, before um, the judge in um, Northern District of California. And in the second half hour, um, we have a return guest, uh, Jillian York, uh, who's now with EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And she's going to talk about the controversy, um, the global controversy, over the video um, of the... Innocent of the innocence of Muslims, the um, the trailer for the the, mo- the movie that has inflamed much of the Islamic world, um, has led to a number of attacks on U.S. facilities worldwide, and she's going to talk about Google's decision to take down 
um, and will block access to the video in certain um, jurisdictions. So we've got interesting topics for you today, and um, um, I believe we have um, Lior with us. Are you Lior? Yes, hi. Thank you for having me on the show. Now, thank you. Now, Lior, you're with um, Golden Gate University School of Law in San Francisco, and um, boy, did my accent really slip on that one. <laughs> the... Um, Tell me, how is it that um, the, the public interest uh, attorney like yourself got involved in this case? Well, uh, while I'm the director of public interest programs at Golden Gate, I'm not just a public interest lawyer. I have, obviously, public interest bona fides, but I've been part of Newman and DeWars, the, the firm um, uh, representing the defendants in this case, for some time. John DeWars has uh, been one of my best friends for a long time, and he likes to use my litigation talents in cases like this, where, where the client's position is really meritorious, and it's a subject about which I feel really passionate. And, but, and, and as do me, I, actually. We both, we both of us have been kind of in the, the front on, on this, this issue and uh, in, in particular, so this case uh, that is Davison Design and Development, um, and you took the, the uh, strategic decision of being faced with a potential spam lawsuit, um, you decided to file a declaratory judgment in federal court. Mm-hmm. Is that, 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 that's, the, the chief, that's the decision you guys made, Correct. That was a chief strategy we made in this case. That's, that's correct. We decided that rather than um, become victims and allow um, the, the, um, Mr. Balsam and his client in this case to, to proceed in state court, that we would make the uh, – we, we would try to uh, proceed in federal court and, and ensure that the case, uh, that the preemption argument was heard um, uh, before somebody who was really familiar with the federal law on that, on that ground. I mean, each of our clients – either operates an internet-based advertising business or advertises over the internet. And, and Riley was claiming in this case that she didn't consent to receive emails even though she had. And, and our clients sent emails to her, each of which described an offer in the front line and the subject line. And you could click on a link in the email that led to the website. And she was claiming that she received at least 60 of these emails, each of which entitled her to $1,000 in statutory damages. She alleged that the from lines failed to adequately adequately describe the sender and that the subject lines were materially misleading, but she didn't allege that she was deceived or relied on them in any way or or was harmed in any way, and and nevertheless was asking for tens of thousands of dollars in damages. And um, the defendant, Riley, this is Balsam's wife? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, that that's that's uh, something that came to our attention during the litigation. That the defendant Riley in this case is is uh, is engaged to Mr. Balsam. Yes, that's correct. And I think they got married over the summer. So this you know since that, that they are not, I believe now they are now husband and wife. And um and you know, we've talked about you know Balsam a fair deal on in, in some of we've talked we actually talked to his his lawyer Timothy Walton has been on a couple of times and. Um, we've had other broadcasts where we talked about Balsam, and um, and then he actually has written um, in response to one such broadcast with a detailed uh, scathing letter claiming everything we said was defamatory. So, just so for for those listening, in particular if Dan is listening, um, the statements here we're making are our opinions and uh, our interpretation of the facts of the case. And um, and if you are writing about the show, you probably have should have better things to do. But in any event, that having been said, so um, the argument you made um, as to why this was preemptive was what? Well, we essentially uh, 
raise the issue of can spam. Can spam um, was passed by Congress because it was worried about. Uh, opportunists using state spam laws to extort substantial monetary damages and needlessly tie up court dockets. Um, it, it, Congress, in passing the Can Spam Act, also mandated that only an ISP or a government agency, the parties actually likely to be harmed by alleged spam, have standing to bring suit. So that was essentially our argument that there was a we 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 asked for declaratory relief that the Can Spam Act. Um, uh, uh, preempted, preempted this, uh, preempted this, uh, this cause of action, uh, and allowed us to proceed in in, uh, in federal court. Um, and, and in fact, we cited a course called Gordon versus Virgin Mundo that the Ninth Circuit decided in 2009, in which can spam was decided that it preempted all state law claims, except for those commercial, um, except for those claims related to commercial email that arise from traditional tort theories. Again, uh, damages. Now, the, you're in, the jurisdiction that you're, you're in is the Northern District of California, and for those right. who are unfamiliar with the court, federal court system here, you know there are uh, the three um, districts in California: the Northern District, the Central District, and the Southern District. So you're in the Northern District, and there are other, there's this, this issue has been raised before in the Northern District, has it not? Yes, uh, this, this, this issue was raised before in the Northern District, and, and uh, the, the few instances in which it has been raised, it's, it's not been a well-litigated issue, but the few instances in which it has been raised, the, the courts have found in our favor, and found in the favor of, of, of the clients and the businesses that we represent in this case, which is that the Can-Spam Act preempts all state law except for those actions that have to do with traditional tort theories. And when I argued the case before Judge Hamilton, she that that is the argument that she seemed to accept, which is the idea that a client needs to demonstrate that they were deceived in some way, that they uh, were damaged in some way, that there was an actual tort, a real injury. And absent that, um, the Can't Spam Act was designed to preempt state law so that there's, there should be no action in that case. Now, there is, isn't there some case law, though, that says that you know that that's too strict an interpretation that the 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 statutory language providing for exception under can spam is that it covers both um you know, fraud and deception and some courts have said that you really have to give full meaning to the conjunctive aspect of that clause and and so therefore having requiring just a, a strict um fraud type of a pleading requirement is is inappropriate I think the judges in federal courts, by and large, have found that 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 any time that that uh, the focusing on the linguistic argument that you just made, any time that we look beyond a case that really requires proof of damages, the line becomes too fuzzy, and it's too difficult to determine what the federal law was designed to preempt and what it was designed to accept and allow for the states to control. And the only real clear, bright line that the courts could define, and I think Judge Hamilton wisely recognized, is that there has to be an allegation of real damages. And absent that, there's nothing really to talk about. It's everything that the federal uh, government, the con- that Congress was trying to preempt. Now, um, it seemed from looking at the, the transcript from the, the, the argument that the judge was also persuaded on the issue of materiality, because there's some case law that if you're going to allege damage, you know, under this, it has to be material. You know, the mere fact that, you know, if it's, for example, those are Fourth Circuit case, where it was the mere fact that there was some error, there was some, somehow, 
there was something incorrect about the email subject line or from line or whatever. Um, but if it wasn't material, it, didn't, it wasn't sufficient to give rise to a claim under the exception. Well, I thought that was a good argument, too, Bennett. I really did, and I raised that in the oral argument before Judge Hamilton. But she seemed to think that damages were, this, were squarely the issue. And she then uh, put it to me, which, do, which did I think was the better argument to use as a basis to dismiss Mr. Balsam's counterclaims? And I said, Judge, that's up to you. But she seemed to be absolutely persuaded by the damages question, even though I think the materiality question itself also supports her. I, I, yeah, I, I think so, too. And I think that, you know, there's a number of areas where I think the California statute runs into trouble, um, particularly as you, if you get further down and start talking about, well, there's the, the whole definition. Calif- you know, the, the history of the statute was that it was passed, um, the, Calif- the Can Spam Act was passed in response to California's spam law. And California's spam law was written by you know, Kevin Murray, who actually defined um, consent to require that consent be with the advertiser, not the person sending the email. And only later do you realize that that, that was just completely, you know, flummoxed all email in the United States. And so, you know, he actually got saved by Congress, you know, from what would have been a, a real disaster. And, um, and so there really hasn't been any litigation so far on that issue. Of consent, you know, as it pertains to the advertiser and whether or not that's that would be a commerce clause issue. You're absolutely right. There isn't a lot of litigation in any of these areas, but I think we we really, and one of the reasons why the businesses in this case retained our firm, Newman and Dwarves, is because we're regular civil litigators. We understand the technology backwards and forwards, and the judges, and they know that judges can rely on us to understand why the law is what it is, and essentially explain to them why the few cases that are out there should lead the court in any one particular direction. And I think, you know, on the balance of the law certainly supported our argument, and Judge Hamilton wisely saw that. So um, what is the next thing that's going to happen? Clearly, I would expect Walton and Balsam to appeal um, this ruling. They could. They could certainly expect to, uh, to repeal. There's obviously going to be a discovery phase that will proceed at this point, and, and uh, the case will proceed because uh, though the counterclaims were dismissed, the declaratory relief action that, that my firm filed on behalf of uh, these clients will proceed. And, um, and, and we and hope so to get a clear uh, declaration that the act- activities at issue in this case were completely legal. And so then, I guess, imagine you'd be, be setting this up for a quick motion for summary judgment and getting it resolved. Yes, that is something we're discussing. And so, procedurally, can, does Balsam's appeal have to wait until after the DJ action is resolved and, and the whole matter is appealed, or can they appeal this interlocutory? They could ask for uh, relief now, but again, I mean, this is going to be an expensive, um, that would be an expensive avenue for, for Mr. Balsam to proceed, especially in a case where he and his client, as it seems, are relying on the proceeds of a settlement to ensure that, um, essentially to, to, to cover whatever activities that they've, they've taken in this case thus far. And what settlement um, would that be? Our clients are interested in discussing settlement, and, and I assume that, that 
Mr. Balsam and his client would like to talk about that as well. Um, and I think it would be in the best interest of all parties for that. So you hope this, and if there's a settlement, though, would you at least leave this president out there? I'm sorry, what was your question, Bennett? You know, some settlements, actually, you know, they, uh, they, they, re- they remove um, you know, precedent that, that existed in order that the, ca- the case can't be cited for future use. And you know, there have been settlements like that in the past. And there have I been guess- settlements like that in the past, and we're nowhere near figuring out exactly what the terms will be for this particular case. But yes. All right, we're going to take a, a short break, but when we come back, um, we'll have Lior tell us a little bit further about the case and about what he's doing at um, Golden Gate University after these messages. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Oh yeah, my day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use certifiedknowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. Rise links and web indexes. Take a bow to the largest link map in the world. Majestic SEO. Majestic SEO wields its virtual sort with speed and accuracy to deliver detailed reports of your company's link data and that of your competition. Let Majestic SEO make you your own king of internet marketers and join the crusade of clients and agencies that have chosen the noble choice for link intelligence. MajesticSEO.com Maximize ROI to use your time and let Majestic wield its mighty sword. MajesticSEO.com. It's good to be king. Building better search engine rankings takes the right formula. Tracking those rankings is super simple. All you need is AuthorityLabs.com. Authority Labs uses automated daily rank tracking tools to monitor your site's performance or leverage their API to build your own tools. No matter what animal-labeled algorithms affect your ranking, you should be using Authority Labs. Unlimited users for no additional cost and white labeling can help keep your clients updated and save countless hours of creating reports. Whether you're running sites with just a few or millions of keywords, what you need is AuthorityLabs.com. WebmasterRadio.fm Keep your headphones handy and the feed loaded. We never stop. Do you? The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back. You're listening to the Cyber Law and Business Report here on Webmaster Radio. This is Ben and Kelly, and we're talking about recent decision on the Can Spam Act in the Northern District, California. We have Lior Netta, um, Golden Gate University School of Law and also part of um, Newman Dewars. And, um, you know, we talk about these cases. Sometimes people, are, they go, oh my God, you're representing the bad guy. You're representing the spammer. 
And um, if you look at, you know, at just, just looking at your brief and your summary of the allegations, it seems that um, Mrs. Balsam or Ms. Ms. Riley um, was claiming, it says here, um, she asserts the header information identifying the type of business promoted in the email rather than the name of the business in the front line, for example, are deceptive. Um, for example, she claims that an email from the American Association of Retired Persons captioned, Benefits for 50-plus, you know, because you have to be over 50 to be a member of the AARP, was likely to mislead the recipient. And, of course, I'm curious as to how she would be misled. But would she be misled to believe that she was older than she was? Or, um, And so I think that's, that's um, the kind of the problem people have with these type of claims is they're somewhat opportunistic. They definitely seem to stretch, uh, I think, the uh, – the, the meaning of the word deceptive, and that that AARP example, how how representative is that of the other claims in the case? Uh, it, I'll just be clear. I've received probably fifteen spam messages, if you want to call them that, since the moment this phone call began. Mm-hmm. This is something that I receive all the time, Bennett. You receive all the time. What do we do? Right. We ignore them. We, right. we, we, we have spam filters. We, we find ways to, to, to handle this mess, and it, it doesn't really impact our day-to-day lives. You know, I check into my spam folder once a week, and I delete all the emails that are there. The reason why I think this is a public interest issue is that cases like this, predicated on state spam laws that don't require people to show real damage, real injury, are clogging up our courtrooms. And one of the most serious problems that we have in this country today is overclogged court dockets. It's preventing real legitimate injuries in cases from having opportunities to be heard in front of judges that need to, to step in and address those harms. When, in, in, the, in the very morning that we argued this motion to dismiss before Judge Hamilton, there were 15 other people on the docket. And some of them had very worthwhile issues, and, and some of them didn't. The reason why I care about this is that I think arguments like the ones that um, uh, Mr. Balsam and other spam litigants uh, plaintiffs make in cases like this tie up court docket time needlessly, and that's a bad thing for this country and the state of California. Well, keep in mind that the state of California has had huge budget cuts, and they're actually closing courtrooms and laying off staff. And so uh, the whole wheels of justice are now grinding that much slower. And I, I recall one and case... And at the same time all that is happening, they're having to spend time dealing with cases like this where there's no injury. And I, I recall one case arguing against Mr. Balsam, and the, the bailiff was just incredulous. He's like, you got to be kidding me. We're wasting time on this. He says, there's a simple solution. And he just pointed to his delete button. He goes, delete, delete, delete. And, you know, and not, not to you know, belittle the issue of spam and... You know, there is a certain amount of deceptive spam that's yeah, out there. But to speak and, to that and, for and just a minute, be Bennett, I mean, the Can Spam Act provides that ISPs and government agencies are the parties that are actually likely to be harmed. And it's, to, to some extent, that's true. If there is a lot of it clogging up the Internet. But the actual recipients who, have, who can take reasonable measures, like imposing spam filters, are not the ones that who should be proceeding in this case. And we shouldn't be funding them by giving them uh, the opportunity to receive substantial monetary damages. And, 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 and that's, that's what you know, he's been able to achieve. I think a lot of it, not through the court, 
a lot of it by the threat of the court. I think mm-hmm. you know he's been successful in, in trying to get uh, – one thing that's unique about California is that you can bring an out-of-state defendant into small claims court. And he's been successful in, in trying to um, you know, get companies to settle just over the nuisance value of, rather than having to um, you know, take the time to send someone to go to court. Because um, in small claims court, you can't have a lawyer, so you have to send someone from your company and – um, and just the whole hassle, the thing, the the process makes people want to just settle. And I think he's, you know, he and a couple other opportunistic people have done well um, because of that. Yeah, I, I, mean, I completely agree. And it, it's um, it's unfortunate because, you know, basically it's a tax on the, the, those in the business that, you know, they more or less, okay, you have to deal with balsam. And then once you do that, then you're also then funding his next, yeah, his next lawsuit or a strike, and you know, I think the sooner the courts rule on this, we get clarity on this. The sooner you know, he'll have to actually go and, and, and work in, in something more more constructive, hopefully. Fortunately, the clients in this case contacted us, as I said, because they know that we understand the technology and this issue, and 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 knew that they didn't want to be pushed around any longer. And and I have not been surprised by the number of calls that our office has received over the course of the last few months about this case and this strategy that we've taken with respect to filing a declaratory relief action, because it's an active position. Uh, there's some costs associated with it, but it's one in which there's some assurance that the plaintiff is not going to keep coming back to the well over and over and over again. Then that's an important thing. And you know, once once you get this resolved, and I, I think you know, there, a lot of people will be very grateful if, if it continues the way it has. And um, and that's the that's the that's the challenge a business faces. You know, I, I can resolve this for X amount, um, but then like you said, they might come back. But am I willing to you know? Am I willing to take that risk this quarter? Do I want to spend that money on my lawyers, or do I want to do something else with it? And um, so I think your clients had a lot of foresight in doing that. What response have you received so far to your victory? A lot of response. As I said, I mean, even before the declare, uh, even before the decision on the motion to dismiss was handed down, uh, we'd had a number of calls from other attorneys asking us about our strategy in this case and uh, what it entailed and and how we uh, developed it. And then since the motion to dismiss was granted, we've had a we've had even just a greater number of calls from attorneys asking us about the strategy and how they can proceed with this with respect to their own clients who are Internet-based advertising businesses. Do you get a sense that this might lead other people to um, be less likely to settle now? I do. I do because I think while there wasn't a a, a whole lot of um, a case law on the subject prior to this uh, motion to dismiss being granted, I think the balance of it certainly was in our favor. And now there's simply even a greater argument that this is the this is where the trend is going, and 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 increasingly it's becoming increasingly clear that the there's a, there's a fine bright line there's bright line rule that there has to be damages in order for a person to bring an action under a state spam law. And um, you know, it's definitely, that's definitely true. And uh, I think it's um, how this has progressed. And it's, it's interesting that it happened, you know, such a, a change of pace because he just had, you know, Balsam just had a big victory 
in the California Court of Appeal. And so I'm sure you felt much, much more emboldened after the Tranco's decision. But the, I still think, you know, the, the preemption argument was, is, is, is always there. And you know, so far, he's been fortunate to have escaped it. Well, that's interesting, and because that was a case in which he himself was the plaintiff, and he did argue that vociferously before Judge Hamilton, uh, claiming that uh, he knew the case, he was very intimate uh, with uh, the Tranko's case. Um, but despite that fact, it, 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 was, it was an isolated issue in which um, the, the businesses in that case had... Uh, not only purposely obscured themselves, but made it impossible for themselves to be found without a barrage of discovery. And that was not what happened in this case. Again, the fact that our clients came forward, filed a declaratory relief action as soon as they received those letters, or shortly after receiving those letters, demonstrated that we weren't trying to obscure ourselves. We're, we're legitimate businesses. And, and actually, in Trancos, there was, some, there was actual testimony to the effect of the whole purpose that they did some of the, um, for example, private reg- registration was so people like Dan Balsam won't find us. I think that was some deposition testimony to that effect. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> which, 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 which wasn't which very helpful. Which can first by filing a declaratory relief action and being the first to file and then saying, we're going to go to court, we're going to figure this out right now. So um, you have this dual role with Newman Divorce as well as um, with, with Golden Gate. Tell me a little bit about what you're doing with Golden Gate. So Golden Gate, I counsel students on pursuing public interest careers. I put on public interest programs. I perform a good amount of public interest employer outreach. I um, coordinate the loan repayment assistance program, uh, postgraduate fellowship programs. Um, it, it's it's, it's uh, real inspiring to be part of the law school, I have to say, especially Golden Gate. And, um, and why is that? I, I think Golden Gate has a reputation for being kind of public interest advocacy. Is that, is that, is that the reason? Or? Absolutely. That is certainly true. We're one of the, I think, we've been considered one of the best public interest law schools in the state of California. But beyond that, we really prize practical skills training and the opportunities that students have here at Golden Gate to really learn how to be lawyers before they even graduate is immense. That's something that I think we, an opportunity we provide to, to students that other schools um, don't do. And what are some of the public interest projects you guys have going now? So, um, as I said, we have a vibrant loan repayment assistance program, uh, a bridge fellowship program through which 90-some-odd graduates of this last class will be working in public interest offices, uh, receiving stipends that are provided by the school for them to work and continue to receive post-bar training. Um, we have uh, a tremendous number of events. We have an externship training program that allows students to, to work off campus while in school, receiving credit. Um, uh, a flagship litigation program, and countless alumni in DAs and public defenders' offices um, across the state of California. Yes, it's, it's, it's good to hear. My father was a public defender, so... Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I was a former public defender myself. I, I grew up um, on weekends going to, to prisons <laughs> <laughs> as he visited his clients, so uh, it, it's not probably not your usual childhood. But in any event, um, the, um, the the school is a, um, is um, it, it, Golden Gate. Is, is that a public? Is that a university as well, or is it just a law school? Yes, it's a university as well that we're attached with. Yeah, there's a law school and a university as well. 
and what's is this, does the university itself have the same kind of public interest uh, bent, or is it that really just kind of the, the law school's mission? Absolutely, they have a commitment to opportunity and diversity, and it's it's a great place to be a part of. As, as I talk to the students here at the school, I'm I'm always impressed by the stories of the students who've come here, the kinds of uh, obstacles they've had to overcome, and that's something that is true at the university level, it's at the law school level, and that's why it's, a, it's an interesting place to be. Well, definitely. Um, well, thank you for joining us. If people want to learn more about um, Golden Gate, what's, what's the best way for them to do so? They can absolutely go to our website. That's ggu.edu slash law, or they can email me directly, and I'm at L Netta. That's L is in Lima, N is in November, E is in Echo, T is in Tango, A is in Alpha, at ggu.edu. I'd be more than happy to talk to them. And um, so, and as well as um, New and Dewars, is, um, if they want to learn more about your work there, and John Dewars, who was unable to join us today, um, what's the best way for them to do that? Absolutely. can also email me. My email address is Lior, L-E-E-O-R, at newmanlaw.com. And our website is newmanlaw.com as well. Great. I want to thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to have Jillian York, and we're going to talk about the controversy over a trailer, a movie trailer for the movie The um, Innocence of Muslims after these messages. Thanks again for joining us. I really appreciate it. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Are you losing money because of a poorly designed website? Frustrated by low conversion rates on your online campaigns? The Come to Conversion Conference East 2012. Brasco here for WebmasterRadio.fm inviting you to Conversion Conference East 2012, October 9th and 10th in my backyard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Learn strategies used by the world's top conversion, usability, and testing experts to turn more clicks into customers. Immerse yourself in two days of interactive learning from 33 breakout sessions and three incredible keynotes from landing page optimization guru Tim Ash, conversion scientist Brian Massey, and the brain lady Susan Weinshank. WebmasterRadio.fm listeners get an additional 10% discount on your pass. When you register online at conversionconference.com with the promo code WMFM. Don't be left out. Join us at Conversion Conference East 2012, October 9th through 10th in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Go to conversionconference.com or click on the Conversion Conference logo on the webmasterradio.fm website now. How far do your ads reach? You don't have to fly around the world for the right consumers and clients to find your business. What you need is profit through performance. Location 3 Media helps you to increase your brand's findability and performance. Let Location 3 Media help you create efficient and effective online marketing campaigns that fit your needs and get you results. We know every click starts a journey. Where will your brand be on the path? Visit Location3Media.com. How much time do you spend on SEO research and competitor analysis? What if we told you that there was an easier, faster way? Searchmetrics SEO software propels you to top positions on search engines around the world with our unique global search, social, and competitive data in over 60 countries. Gain a competitive advantage today with Searchmetrics.com. That's Searchmetrics.com. 
blog, blog, blog. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're the talk of the town. WebmasterRadio.fm. Thanks for listening. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back. This is Ben and Kelly. We're here for the second segment of Cyber Law and Business Report. And we have a return guest, um, Jillian York. She's the Director of International Freedom of Expression um, at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, um, who's always been very good to us. And so listeners, um, you may want to consider being very good to them um, since they are um, um, supported by donations, I believe. But Jillian, are you with us? Yes. Hi. How are you? All right. Um, just want to warn everyone. Last time Jillian was here, we were talking about Arab Spring, and um, Mubarak fell just a few days later. So who knows what earth-shattering event may happen after today, right? Um, <laughs> you never know. So it, it, we got an interesting um, dilemma out there. There's this um, video uh, or you have a trailer for it looks like a movie um, called The Innocence of Muslims. Have you seen the video? Yes. Uh, well, I've seen the trailer that's on YouTube, yes. It, it, it is god-awful. It, it, it is one it, of the worst pieces of garbage I've ever seen. It, um, I mean, even the offensiveness aside, just the quality of it, it's like a 70s porn movie. It's, and which apparently the producer had some, he did, used to do that in the 70s. So, um, but in any event, so it's caused this international outcry. And we've seen demonstrations you know, throughout um, the Islamic world, including the unfortunate events that happened in Libya, although some of that appears to have been premeditated and unrelated to um, the, the trailer itself. But and now it has its own life. People are reacting to this trailer, whether or not they've seen it or not. And so Google is in this position of, of how do they respond? And so they've chosen to block it in certain countries. The list keeps growing, it seems. And um, can you give us an update. Where are what, what countries is the video blocked? What countries? Um, I think, well, you know, you've got a, a, a few different sorts of cases here. You've got the two countries where YouTube blocked the video of their own accord, which is uh, Libya and Egypt. Um, and that was not um, by a government request of any kind. It was just YouTube deciding what they thought was the best solution. Um, but then you've also got governments that have blocked YouTube completely. Um, I, I don't know if I've got a complete list, but I know Afghanistan and Bangladesh um, are among those. Um, and then you've also got a few countries where um, the government uh, submitted a, a legal request or a court order to Google, and Google complied with it. And those include India, Indonesia, um, and I think Malaysia. I heard Russia was considering something as well. And, yeah, and the I'm not Obama sure administration exactly what the status of Russia, and I think Saudi Arabia is also um, preparing to, to block it, uh, YouTube entirely. And I think the, the Obama administration asked you to, to, to look at whether or not the video violated its terms and conditions. And YouTube, I guess the conclusion was it did not. But So what is your take, what is your reaction to um, the decision to block it in the countries they did what it did so voluntarily. Sorry, I didn't... Well, what is your reaction to Google's decision with respect to Libya and Egypt where they acted on their own? 
Right, right. So in those two cases, um, the problem that I that I really have with it is that um, you know Google is essentially after you know a whole year and a half of of being sort of a a vehicle for free expression in, in Arab countries throughout the Arab Spring. Um, of course, everywhere. You know, I think Google has generally done a pretty good job. Um, of course, all companies make mistakes. Um, after all that, then they sort of, in my view, turn their backs uh, turn their backs on the, the free expression defenders in those countries. Um, without, they did not consult them. They did. They certainly didn't consult. You know, some of the big free speech organizations in Egypt. Um, and instead, they made their own determination of what was best. Now, you know, some people have called that decision understandable in the in in the face of violence, um, I tend to disagree on a number of reasons. Why is that? I mean, because that is that is an important distinction from you know being just peer pressure from the government. I mean, people are being killed over this video, and which is just astounding because it's so ridiculous and so awful. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the violence is absolutely must be condemned. But at the same time, I think that first off, YouTube is not responsible for that violence. Um, second, I don't think YouTube taking it down had any effect whatsoever on the continuation of violence. Um, and if anything, it's you know riled up free speech defenders in you know in the U.S. Um, as well as in some of these countries. I've seen some some good quotes from Egyptian free speech advocates. Um, I'm not as familiar with the scene in Libya, um, but so you know I think that you know Google obviously had to make a tough decision under a lot of pressure. Um, and from what we've seen, White House pressure as well, which is also very troubling. Um, you know, but at the same time, I think that it, their decision plays right into the hands of those who would wish to ban the video um, and those who would wish to uh, essentially censor all blasphemy. Um, you know, Google, by doing this, has made it, they've opened themselves up for all sorts of parties to request the same thing or to demand the same thing. Um, and I think that they need to be much more cautious about the standards uh, by which they they decide to censor or or you know um, otherwise take down speech, um, I think that the the only um, the only right thing in this situation would have been to wait and respond to any court orders uh, that came from Egypt or Libya. And you know they do that regularly. Um, you know a lot of us we don't we don't necessarily like it, but we have you know we have to respect national laws. And so if if a court in uh, Egypt or Libya had made that legal request, then you know Google probably would have complied. Now there's the the whole concept of yelling fire in a movie theater. I've seen that come up in, in the debates. That you know, we, we protect certain speech, but you know, other speech, such as yelling fire in a movie theater, it is not protected because of, it, of its inflammatory nature and the fact that it is endangering people by doing it. And you know, obviously, this is not the same as yelling fire in a movie theater, but it has had somewhat of a the same incendiary effect. So yes. How yeah, you, so this is a tricky one. I mean, I'm not, how, I'm not a lawyer. Is it dangerous to start weighing the value of speech? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really tricky one. I, I'm not a lawyer, and I've, I've seen um, lawyers present both sides uh, of, of, of this. And so, you know, there are those the who are arguing sentence. that this would be <laughs> considered direct incitement. The video was clearly made with the intention to incite. Um, and at the same time, you know, I've seen on the other side people saying, no, you know, you can't just because one group of people is more likely than another to react violently, you can't, uh, you can't make different rules for them. Um, and I think, you know, I tend to side with that point. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't mean to say this in a way, I, I certainly don't mean to imply that Muslims are more likely than others to be provoked in that way. Um, but in this case, you know, Muslims were provoked, whereas 
in other cases, you know, you've seen that not happen um, to the same degree. And so I guess my point there is that um, you can't make a law that is specific to a certain party, um, at least not in the U.S. You know, we do see that elsewhere. But It's interesting, you know, um, one person who's been interviewed about this is someone who has a little bit of experience with it, and that's Salman Rushdie. Mm-hmm. You know, since it was, I guess, 20 years ago now, that there was a similar reaction to his book, um, Satanic Verses. And I, I recall, and, and um, he spoke here in Los Angeles a few years back, and it was he was signing one of his latest books, and there was a woman who um, had, had him sign a book, and next to her was her boyfriend, and she kept nudging him and nudging him, and he's, he noticed this and said, well, what is it? And he says, um, I just wanted to apologize. Um, I, I led the student demonstrations against you when I was in university. And, uh, um, you know, and now, several years later, I've, I've actually had the opportunity to read the book. and It's not so bad. And, you know, and he said, that's the point. You, know, you guys reacted without even understanding what was going on. Here it's different. You have a video. It's very short. It's clearly designed to um, incite. But, I mean, maybe the, the real question, there's no there there. It's just a short video. It doesn't even seem like there's a real movie behind it. And, you know, I, you know what are we, what, why is this causing such a reaction? Well, you know, I mean, I think that anyone who believes that this is, that the, the, the violent reaction to this video is just about the video is, is you know, fooling themselves. Um, I think there's a lot more behind it. I think that there's a lot of reasons for anger. Now, that's not to say that the violence is excusable. It's not, absolutely not. Um, but let's say, for example, um, let's just pretend for a moment that these were nonviolent protests um, against the video. Now, you know, they still wouldn't have just been about the video. There, there are a lot of reasons um, in Egypt in particular that Egyptians would be angry with the U.S. I mean, we did uphold a dictator of theirs for a few decades. Uh, I, you know, I would be pretty angry as well. Um, again, not violent, but angry. Um, right. And so I think that, you know, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. It is strange, of course, that this particular video managed to provoke so much, but it makes sense in the context of Egypt where you actually had a television channel there um, showing the video and, uh, you know, with the sole purpose of, of trying to incite anger. I believe that, uh, I'm not totally sure on this, but I believe that what happened here is that they actually, um, that the TV channel actually did pin the blame on the video on the U.S. government, which is, you know, a huge provocation on their part. And, you know, that is one thing that is people find peculiar because the, the video had been out there for some time. And, in fact, the, the movie played. It's you know had a very short run, not surprisingly, um, in, here in Hollywood. And so, you know, the question is, how did this come in to be start being broadcast so many months later? Right. Is, um, I think, if I recall, what happened was that someone had um, had just uh, um, come across the video and translated it into Arabic, and that's how it made it to that audience. And so, that was just within the span of the past few weeks. Oh, so it was the translation that really triggered it then. Yeah. Now, you obviously censorship is something that's kind of at your core of your professional life, and um, you know, one one issue you've also been involved in has been the use of censoring software or filtering software. Mm, yes. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? 
Sure. Um, so <laughs> there's a per- there's a fun personal story that goes with this. Um, you know, I've, I've I've certainly had concerns about this for a long time, but a couple of years ago, um, I found out that my blog was blocked in Yemen. And I thought that was kind of strange because I'd never actually written anything about Yemen before. And I thought maybe, okay, maybe they've just got keyword filters that, you know, I don't know, free speech. Maybe that's what they're blocking. Who knows? Um, And then we found out that Yemen at the time was using software built by uh, the company WebSense, which is a California-based company. Um, only builds um, filtering software. I don't think they, you know, they don't do surveillance or any of the other scary stuff. Um, and, you know, this company, when we alerted them to the fact that, uh, that the government of Yemen was using their software, they were not happy about it, um, and they did what they could to um, to discontinue that use. And so, um, you know, I kind of forgot about it until uh, about a year later, um, a friend working at Voice of America said, hey, your blog's blocked at Voice of America. And I thought, okay, that's really strange. So I got in touch with the company again. Well, first I got him to give me a block page, and what I found was that um, the block page said that my blog was blocked uh, because it had been classified as pornography. Now, <laughs> let me say, um, my blog does not have any pornography on it. It doesn't even have any nude photos on it, I don't think. Um, well, certainly not of me, but I think that, you know, I really don't think there's anything there that would be constituted as, as pornography. And so, so I got in touch with the company again. I said, hey, what's going on? And it, as it turns out, um, my blog had been categorized as pornography because um, I had one blog post where I hadn't been monitoring the comments, and a lot of the comments that were left were spam. And those spam comments had links that went to porn sites. And so what that means is that um, they basically have some sort of algorithm that picks up on those outlinks and determines that you are porn because of those outlinks. Um, And that's a really dangerous thing because that means that if I don't like you, I can go to your blog and drop a bunch of porn links on it, and then you're blocked um, by any company or government using that software. Amazing. And um, now there was a, a notable case a year ago with the government of Pakistan actually sending out an RFP for a proposal for software to enable them to censor the Internet. And there was a large amount of pressure brought to bear, but fortunately none of the U.S. companies submitted bids. Yeah, yeah, that was a really interesting one, and that was um – sort of a result of the really hard work of some amazing um, um, advocates there in Pakistan. Um, the group Balobi, there's another group called Bites for All, um, and they were working um, together in collaboration with some groups in the U.S. Um, and in Europe to um, to try to get those companies to refuse, and they were successful. And so, to me, that was just sort of um, an amazing moment because we, you know, there, there was a time where a lot of these groups were really just working on their own. And I think, you know, in my view, in the past couple of years, we've really seen groups from all over the world coming together to work um, in joint effort. It really was a success story, that, that's for sure. We only have a few minutes left, Jillian. If people want to learn more about you or go to your porno blog, <laughs> <laughs> where should they go? Um, that one is Jillian C, C as in cat, york.com. And, uh, and at EFF? Yeah, yeah, they can go to EFF.org, um, Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, We've got some great new, uh, great new swag. They can buy some of that, or they can donate to us, or they can just check out our blog. Great, and I highly recommend it. It's a very useful blog. Well, welcome to California. You've since you've moved here from um, being at the Berkman Center on the other coast. So I want to thank you for coming to California and for joining us once again. And uh, it's been great having you and um, everyone, Jillian York. And please check out her blog. And um, she's definitely someone to watch in this space. She's been very influential and uh, had a lot of visibility on the issue of internet censorship.
Thanks, Thank Angela. You. Thank you so much for having me. And um, we only have a few minutes left. Uh, I recommend that you really take a look at um, President Washington's farewell statement. He, uh, he has some famous warnings. One of them was about um, foreign entanglements, um, but the other one was about excessive partisanship and warnings about um, false claims of patriotism. And so um, I believe they'll be reading it in Congress today, but definitely check it out if you can. And um, also today is a notable anniversary. It's uh, President Garfield, our first president to be assassinated. He was actually shot in July and then died on this day many years ago. But on that note, um, this is Bennett Kelly. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report. I want to thank you for joining us. Um, check out our blog, which is at ilccyberreport.com or the Internet Law Center at internetlawcenter.net. And this is Ben and Kelly. Thanks again for joining us. Next week, we'll be going to Gig City. We're going to be talking to people about Chattanooga, Tennessee, which has the highest, the fastest internet speed in the country at one gig per second. So join us next week. We'll be talking Gig City from Santa Monica. And this is Ben and Kelly. Have a good week. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.